The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Mark writes this, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus, we come now and we ask your blessing on this time. Please open our eyes and our hearts to understand you better even through this. To recognize, Lord, that while these 12 men have been called to apostleship, all of us have been called to discipleship. And so that I pray, Lord, both today and in the weeks to come as we think through some of these components and these men and how you've used them and what you have done, that we never lose sight of the fact that it all comes back to you. And, and, and that is the encouragement and the challenge. Help us to remember that in our lives, everything comes back to you as well. And any good things we see, any grace we see in our hearts and lives, anything we do for you is only because you have done that in us. As we give you this time, we ask your word to be powerful and ask your spirit to use it. In Jesus' name, amen. On December 30th, 2011, John Avalon, who was a, oh, got ahead of myself there. There. Now you got a sneak peek of a joke I'm going to tell you. Uh, That's a good way to start. December 30th, 2011, John Avalon, who is a senior political uh, advisor for Newsweek and also the Daily Beast, he wrote an op-ed for CNN titled Mitt Romney's Humor Problem. And the article begins by noting that in the weeks prior to, to the article, Romney was, or the Romney campaign, I should say, was in a, a particular phase where they were trying to humanize him more because he had come across kind of wooden to people through some of the early part of the campaign, and, and they were trying to find a way to make him more, just a normal guy, more appealing to the, the people around him. And one of the aspects that they chose to focus on there was the area of, of humor. And so various members of his family were deployed to talk about his love of humor. His wife, Anne, was quoted as calling him her most naughty child. Take with that what you want. Uh, his sons recounted, quote, their father's penchant for practical jokes and corny one-liners. But, but Avalon mentioned those things only in passing as the, really, the, the thing that interested him the most was an interview that Romney gave to Wolf Blitzer. And in the course of the interview, this humor issue came up, totally accidentally, came up, and he was able to make a comment, and this is what Avalon quotes. He says, quote, but what raised my eyebrows was when Romney offered a list of his favorite funny men to Wolf Blitzer that featured Laurel and Hardy, the Three Stooges, even the Keystone Cops. Now, I recognize that in a room like this where the average age of the people in here is probably, what, like 16 maybe? I don't know where we're at. It's a very young room. That even as I read off those three comedy teams, not everyone in here is going to be equally familiar with all of them or maybe have ever even heard of them. And in fact, that's really Avalon's main point. That if Romney wanted to connect with voters, particularly his target audience, which was a younger crowd, he probably should have picked something post-1950s humor in order to 
to build a rapport with them and a connection with them. But, but you know, that aside, regardless of whether or not you're familiar with them, there is no question that those three groups particularly were really quite groundbreaking in the world of humor and comedy at the time in which they were, uh, they were acting. And while they're very different in many respects, the one thing that all three of those teams have in common is that they really mastered the art of slapstick in every possible respect, verbally, physically, and situationally. And so they would say funny things, right? If you've ever watched The Three Stooges, you can picture Curly or Larry saying something and Moe hitting him on the back of the head because he was kind of offensive or, like, attacked somebody. And you, you know what I'm talking about? I didn't like The Three Stooges, quite frankly. I don't think they're funny. I know I just lost respect in some of your minds, but I gained it in a few others, too. So I'm all right with that. They said funny things, they did funny things, I can picture scenes like the Keystone Cops carrying a ladder and somebody calls his name and he turns around and when he does he knocks out three people that were behind him he didn't know was there. That's funny, right? They, they found themselves in awkward, funny situations that audiences loved watching them react to, so put Laurel and Hardy in a, in a kind of a formal party scene where people are dressed up and drinking tea and just watch them react because they don't know how to function in that setting, and so it's funny. And it was those kinds of comedy t- uh, teams that I think we must most often associate the 12 men that we call the apostles and the disciples here in Mark, we, we most often associate them with those kinds of groups. Uh, as I pointed out numerous times over the years, not just here in Mark, these 12 men that we're going to read about a lot from this point on are often presented as not being very astute or distinguished in the scenes that they are appearing in here in the gospel accounts. In fact, at points, it almost seems as if they're trying to master the art of slapstick themselves in just about every respect, word, uh, deed, and situation. So verbally, they just say some dumb things along the way, right? I mean, here's Thomas, day or two maybe after Jesus has risen from the dead, and everyone else has seen Jesus except him. And they've told him, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive, and what does he say? Unless I can stick my hand in his side and my finger in the holes in his hands, I'm not going to believe it. And that's one of the only comments we have of Thomas. It's kind of a dumb comment, really, if you get right down to it. And what do we call him because of that comment? Doubting Thomas, right? I mean, he, this might have been the only time he ever doubted. But this is what we know him as. Doubting Thomas, a dumb remark that is recorded in Scripture for us to remember forever. It, it, it's just part of the, the way things go here. Physically, they do some dumb things. Think of Peter. This is my favorite scene for this one. Think of Peter that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has been praying. He's been asleep. All of a sudden, a crowd, an armed crowd, swords, spears, clubs, they come to arrest Jesus. And it just so happens that Peter has a sword. So if you're Peter, you're one guy with one sword, and you've got a whole crew of armed men in front of you, clearly the right action is attack, right? I mean, that makes complete sense. So he runs and he takes a swing at Malchus, the high priest. Uh, a servant, probably trying to cut off his head, at least trying to do some damage. He catches his ear, and I'm trying to wonder in Peter's mind, like, what's the next step, right? Because let's say he kills Malchus. Let's say he succeeds in this, and Malchus is dropped dead on the, on the ground. What are all these other people going to do now? They're going to kill him. There's no thought to this plan. He just acts, and so you, you see this. It's not Really funny, but it is kind of funny. It's clearly not a very well thought through plan. And then situationally, situationally they react in some pretty dumb ways in a number of, uh, of times we see in the Gospels as well. My new favorite 
example of this is the, the story where Jesus calmed the sea, and that's thanks to the, the funny and memorable way that Michael Frost, one of the speakers at Verge last year, presented it. And if, if you've heard him tell this story, forgive me for ruining it, okay? But if you haven't, I'm the best you know, so this works out all right. But, but Frost is talking about um, the scene where Jesus and the disciples are crossing the sea, right? And these are experienced fishermen. They know the Sea of Galilee, and they're, they're going across, and in the middle of their trip, a, a storm blows up and all of a sudden the waves are tossing to and fro and the ship must be in danger of capsizing because the text specifically says that they think they're going to die and so so here they are jesus is asleep these experienced fishermen on the on the boat sea of galilee they wake jesus up and say save us lord we're perishing and jesus responds by saying to him why are you afraid oh you have little faith I mean, and and to elaborate that point just a moment before I tell the story, there, there's no safer place you can be than with Jesus, right? So if you got Jesus in the boat, what do you need to worry about at this point? And so Frost trying to play that out says, well, imagine an alternate ending. Imagine for a moment that the disciples' fears are founded, right? And, and the boat capsizes and 11 of the disciples and Jesus all drown in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, but one disciple makes it, one disciple swims to shore and he makes it, he lives, and years later, he's an old man, and he's sitting at home, and his grandson comes up to him and says, Grandpa, did anything amazing ever happen to you in life? And he says, well, yes, son, yes. Well, what, Grandpa, what happened? I met the Messiah. You met the Messiah, Grandpa? Yes, yes, I met the Messiah. What was he like? Oh, he was amazing. He brought us truth from God. He, he healed the sick. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He was God. God in human form. Well, what happened to him, Grandpa? He died in a boating accident. Like, that would make no sense at all, right? <laughs> I like that. That would make no sense at all. If you're with Jesus, you're in the safest possible place, are you not? Which is why Jesus says to them, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? And, and so you, you have all this stuff going on. That's why I say at points that they look like they're trying to master the art of slapstick, do they not? Because verbally, physically, situationally, they're constantly doing things that are really nonsensical in the story. And yet I would point out to you that these, these are the men that Jesus himself chose to build his church upon these men it's not as if he put out applications for the position of apostle and he just didn't get enough options you know not enough people turned in good ones so he took the best 12 he could find kind of thing it's not it's not that at all no he hand picked these 12 men he chose each and every one of them personally personally and ideal i'll develop more next week and the point that i want you to see in making that statement is that in choosing them he didn't choose us. He, he could have come back at any point in human history he wanted to, could he not? He could have come back, you know, 30 years ago, been born, excuse me, not come back, come 30 years ago. He could have been born as a baby, and today he would be getting ready to begin his ministry. And he needs 12 men, so he's like, I'll take Tony, and I'll take Jarrett, and I'll take Pete, and I'll take uh, everybody else who I want to pick here, all these other guys. All right, great. He could have done that, could he not have? Yet, when he compared Peter to any of us in this room, he said, yeah, I'll take Peter. When he compares Thomas to any man in this room, he picked Thomas. 
when, when he compared Judas Iscariot to every man in this room, he picked Judas Iscariot. What does that tell you about you and me? All right? He, he hand-picked these men. When he compared those men to us, he chose them. I'd, he'd rather have them than us. And so whatever we may think of these 12 men, based on the stories that are recorded about them here in the Gospels, they're actually kind of a big deal. And we really do need to understand them. And that brings us into this new section here in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 35. If you were here last week, then you know what this new section is all about. It's about responses. And so we've just finished a section where, where Mark has been laying out a series of controversies that Jesus encountered as he's in the middle of ministry. So he's in a situation and he doesn't do what's expected and a controversy arises. We've had five of these little scenes here of controversy. And, and having laid out for us those scenes where Jesus is running into controversy, having presented Jesus now as a very controversial figure, it's time to respond. That's his point here. You cannot remain neutral to the, the kinds of things that Jesus has said and done. You, you have to respond. He's claiming to be the Son of God. He, that he can't be telling the truth and lying at the same time. It's one or the other. Either he is a Son of God or he's not. You've got to pick. And so you've got options. One response is that you believe what he says is true, that, that, and that's what the disciples do. That's why they're chosen. In fact, as we're going to see here, eventually their call to apostleship is a call to go out and say the same things that Jesus is saying. In other words, not only do they have to accept him and believe him, but they have to do that to the point where they're willing to go out and do and say the same things on his behalf and meet the same end, quite frankly. But not everyone believes, of course. Because again, he's either God or he's not. There's no middle ground on that point. So if you choose to reject him, you do so for one of two reasons. First, you can do it because you think he's crazy. Maybe he's sincere, but he's sincerely wrong. You ever seen uh, Arsenic and Old Lace? Anybody like that movie? That's a, that's, a, that's a good movie. If you've never seen it, you should watch it. Cary Grant and other people. So they're in the movie. I don't know who they are. Cary Grant and other people are in this movie. And, and Cary Grant's got a, a crazy brother who thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt. So every time Teddy Roosevelt... Uh, gets ready to go upstairs, he grabs his bugle and he blows it full blast and he yells, charge! And he runs up the stairs because he's always storming whatever Teddy Roosevelt stormed. So that's what he's doing every time. What's that? San Juan Hill. I got that. All right. He's charging. He thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt, right? He's sincere. He genuinely believes he's Teddy Roosevelt. Of course, he's genuinely not Teddy Roosevelt, so he's sincerely wrong. He's crazy. He's out of his mind. Is that what Jesus is? Well, his family sure thinks so, right? Because if you look at verses 20 and 21, you see that's exactly what they think of him. They think he's out of his mind. He thinks he's the son of God, but he's not. What's wrong with him? He's, he's lost it. And so they think he's crazy. Of course, there's another reason you might reject him, I said last week, and that's that you think he's a liar. In other words, not only is he wrong, but he knows he's wrong and he's purposely misleading people. And so that's the response of the religious leaders in chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. He claims to be doing things he does by, by the power and authority of God. But they say, no, you're not doing it by the power of God. You're doing it by the power of Satan. Quite a claim. Quite a claim. So they reject him on the basis that he's a liar, purposely misrepresenting himself to the people and purposely attempting to mislead the people. These are the responses you have before you. You accept him 
or you reject him because you think he's crazy, or you reject him because you think he's a liar. It's one of, one of these options. There is no middle ground. He can't be God and not be God. He either is or he isn't. We all have to respond, and it's these 12 men here in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19, who heard his claims to be God come in the flesh, who have believed and responded accordingly. And because of their faith, Jesus is going to take these 12 men He's going to do some amazing things with them. Amazing, amazing things with them. Despite all their shortcomings, despite all their failures, despite their slapstick-like words, actions, and responses. And so what I want to do with you both today and maybe a couple more Sundays is just take a few, few times together here to really try to understand who these men are. We need to know them. You're going to read about them. We're going to spend the rest of Mark talking with these guys, listening to these guys, watching these guys. And so we need to have some kind of framework for understanding them in the way that that I think Mark wants us to, because again, as I said a moment ago, they're kind of a big deal. And so I want to begin that process this morning of getting to know them by asking and answering a few questions that I think will give us a a good foundation on which we can build as we move forward. And the questions we're going to ask are these. Who are they? When were they called? What were they called to exactly, and why were they called? And I think in answering those four questions as we do that this week and next, really has the potential for radically changing how we view these guys and even how we view discipleship as a whole. So we're going to answer the first two today, and we'll get to the next two next Sunday. Let's begin with question number one. Who are these guys? Because when you, when you mention the apostles to someone, instantly a certain mental picture jumps in their head, okay? And so the reason for that is because culturally, both in general culture and in Christian culture and church culture, there has been a lot of ways these guys have been viewed. For example, here's my picture. They've been viewed as saints with halos, right? Matt Shohart looked at this and said, this was the first apostolic selfie. It's like a whole bunch of selfies they put together. And they've all got their halos on, right? What are halos anyway? Have you ever thought about this? It's a weird thing, particularly when they're shown this way. So you've got, uh, this is apparently is a famous Ethiopian picture or painting that was made a long, long time ago. Here's another one, uh, a European one. Again, they look, they've got coins behind their head in this picture. Here's another one, uh, a famous one of them sitting at the table. And as I'm looking at these photos, I will say, because this is what I do during the week, I'm looking at these pictures and I'm thinking to myself, ah, this is where the tradition of wearing hats to church came from. Because doesn't it look like they're wearing hats? Like the guys here in the foreground took theirs off, but ever Jesus and the rest kept theirs on. That's a free one for you. All right. They're viewed as saints with halos, or, or since I didn't grow up in a, a Catholic background, I grew up in a Southern Protestant background, this is what I more normally saw, that Jesus and the apostles were tall white men. I'm going to drop a bomb going to blow some of your minds. They weren't white. Okay? Not only was Jesus not white, none of the apostles were as well. In fact, most likely they looked more like this. This was something, I've shown you this picture one other time in the past, that popular mechanics did, where they took uh, a number of skulls from first century Palestine and did forensics and computer modeling to show what an average male's face looked like who lived in Palestine in the first century. And this is, this is him, okay? This is bone structure and color and hair, and they're Jewish. They're probably short. 
probably stocky, probably strong. I, I, have, I have said this before, and if you've heard it, I'm sorry I'm going to say it again. I'm so sick of seeing wimpy Jesus pictures. The man was a carpenter in a time without power tools. He must have had forearms like Popeye. I'm not even kidding or being funny. He, he had to have been a really strong guy. If all you do all day is work with wood, with no tools. I mean, no power tools, that is. I mean, can you imagine? He's not this wimpy guy walking around. It looks like he's emaciated and about to die. He, he's probably a very strong man. This is what he looked like, not how we have been uh, shown these guys. All of them probably look something like this. They're fishermen. They're tradesmen. This is just who they are. Another way they've been viewed is as objects of veneration and even worship. I would love to know the stat of how many stained glass windows there are just in America. That, that depict these guys as things we should look at and go, oh, like the angels should start singing when we walk in. Or, or they've been created into some kind of weird worship, like idol type thing here. These are the guys are like Greek gods, not like, not like apostles. Veneration, worship. My, my point is simply, as we approach the subject, I recognize that not all of you, because of your backgrounds, are coming in here with the same idea. You're coming in with some preconceived notions about who these guys are and, and how you should view them. And for many people, the image that forms in their minds of who the apostles are is based more on their later selves as writers of the New Testament and foundation of the church than on this picture that we're going to see here in Mark. And that confuses people. We can see them as larger-than-life figures when in reality, they're nobody. Do do you understand this? They are nobodies. They are, as John MacArthur says in the title of his book, just 12 ordinary men. Very ordinary men. Very common men. All the ones we know anything about are from Galilee, and Galilee was considered a very blue-collar kind of area. It's an area known for for fishermen and and farmers and tradesmen. All the religious, political, social power was all down in Judea. All the elites are down there, not in Galilee. And to try to help you understand that here in our local context, so so if if Great Neck and Hilltop and Town Center are uh, are the kind of like the elite parts of Virginia Beach, that'd be Judea. Well, then Pungo and Blackwater and Creeds would be, be Galilee. Just to give you an idea kind of how they were viewed, how it was different from that southern area. Does, does that help a little bit in you understanding where they're from? All the ones we know about are, are from that area where nobodies live. And they're not distinguished by their occupations or social status either. We know that four of them at least are fishermen, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. We know that one is a tax collector, Matthew, which financially is a step up from fishermen, but socially is many steps down. Because they're hated and despised, he's considered to be a traitor to his nation because part of his job is funding the Roman occupation of Israel. That's what he's doing every day when he collects taxes. He's funding the the enemy's occupation of the homeland. That's why he's considered a traitor. traitor. We know that one is a zealot, Simon the Zealot. You see his name there in verse 18. That's not an occupation, that's an ideology. Okay, The zealots were a social-slash-political movement that sought to overthrow Roman rule of Palestine by pretty much any means necessary. Sabotage, murder, force, one particular group of the zealots. We don't know that Simon was a part of this, but we know about this group. They were known as the Sicarii. And the reason they had that name is because they carried a, a particular kind of knife under their robes that was known as a Sicarii. 
And if they ever got an opportunity to find a, a Roman soldier by themselves, they slit his throat. They could get away with it. And so, you know, the zealots, at least some of them, are, are basically terrorists, to use a modern word, which is particularly interesting when you realize that Jesus picks a zealot and a tax collector and puts them on the same team, right? A guy whose job it is or has been to fund the enemy's occupation and a guy whose mission in life is to end it. I bet that made for some interesting dinners, I would imagine. And we don't know what the other guys did for a living or what political persuasions they were prone to, but from what we know, there's really nothing here to brag about. <laughs> Fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. That's why I say to you that they're, they're nobodies. Nobodies. They're just a group of very normal men. And, and just here's a little interesting fact for you because I didn't know where else to stick it. I'm sticking it here. Whenever these normal men are listed in Scripture, okay, there's 12 of them, right? They're always listed in three groups of four. Three groups of four. And I'm going to show you this. Each group has a, a, a leader. And I don't mean leader in the sense of like they led the group, like they're a separate little subgroup within the 12, but they always lead out the list of names. And then they're always followed by the same three individuals who may be arranged in different orders depending on, on who's writing it. Okay, so you've got these three groups. In group number one, Peter is always the first name mentioned in group one. He's always the first disciple mentioned. And he goes also by the name Simon Barjono, by the name Cephas. We know that he's originally from Bethsaida, but he moved to Capernaum at some point, and he's a fisherman. In his group, you always have three men, James, John, and Andrew. And so this group, are they're all fishermen. They're two sets of brothers. They're all from the same town. And this is the group that is the most active and vocal throughout the Gospels. You're going to hear them talking way more than anybody else. And they also tend to be closer to Jesus in just about any scene you can think of or find. So, so I don't want to say that Jesus shows favorites, but he, he certainly allows them greater access and opportunity than he will the other groups. Okay, So this is group number one. Group number two is always started with Philip. Always with Philip. And he's from Bethsaida as well, from the same hometown that Peter's from. So I assume they probably know each other, I would imagine. I don't know that for a fact. But in his group, you have three men as well that are always repeated in some order. And that's Bartholomew, who also goes by the name Nathaniel. Matthew, who also goes by the name of Levi, son of Alphaeus. And Thomas, who is also known as Didymus, which means twin. So he has a twin. Is the twin one of the apostles? We don't know. I've never given any information about that. Here you've got Matthew, the tax collector. This is a much more distant group than one, but they do still interact a bit in the Gospels. You're still going to hear from them some as the story progresses. And then you get to group number three, which is the most distant of the groups. And it's always led out by James, son of Alphaeus. So just note, Levi, son of Alphaeus, James, son of Alphaeus, are they brothers? We don't know. Could just be that they both had a dad by the name of Alphaeus, but, but we don't know that for a fact. And in his group, the last, whoop, last three always come, Simon the Zealot, uh, Judas the son of James, who's also known as Thaddeus, and Judas Iscariot. And obviously the one here that we know the most about is who? Judas Iscariot, because he's the traitor. He's the, the one who betrays Jesus, and so we're going to hear more about him. The rest of these guys are basically silent most of the time. We know very, very little about this third group. So, so I just wanted to give you some of this information as an overview so that you can understand some of the details that are going on, some of the relationships that we see, some of the components to this. These are, these are the 12 men that Jesus chose. Now, again, a quick side note, because some of these don't really flow well together, so I'm trying to 
help you understand things the best I can. Why did Jesus pick 12? I mean, why not, why not six or maybe just the four since he spent the most time with those first four? Or why not 20? What was significant about the number 12? Well, I do believe that that was tr- truly a symbolic number for him. Jesus had lots of disciples. And this is one of the problems we're going to run into throughout Mark, is that sometimes Mark's going to use the word disciples to refer to all of Jesus' followers, and sometimes he's going to use the same word to refer only to the twelve, okay? And that's going to happen in all the Gospels. We're going to, this word disciples is kind of a fuzzy term for them. When they say apostles, they always mean the twelve, but when they say disciples, it can go either way. And when you get down to it in the Gospels, it appears that Jesus had lots of disciples, At one point, Luke tells us he had so many disciples at hand that he sent them out in groups of two, and I think he sent out 35 groups, 70 disciples total, went out. So not just 12 people following behind him. He's got like an entourage going with him wherever he goes. And so there are all these disciples, and yet he only chooses 12 of them to be apostles. And I think what you see here is Christ appointing new leadership for a new covenant. Just like when God instituted the old covenant there were 12 tribes to whom he entrusted it now as jesus comes bringing the new covenant he entrusted it to 12 men thus i think really replacing institutionalized judaism in the process and so this is just who these guys are this is what we're going to see and we'll develop some of these ideas more as we work forward but i wanted to answer that first question for you and i hope i have number two when were they called And this might seem like a weird question, but it's helpful to me in understanding the story better because as I have pointed out in the past, we tend to read the gospel accounts of the calling of the disciples with a good bit of confusion in mind. So you see Jesus walking down the the Sea of Galilee, right? And this is the scene from Mark 1 that I talked about a, a few months ago now. And he sees two sets of brothers out mending their nets. And he's like, hey, follow me. And they're like, oh, look, a stranger, let's follow him. You know, That's how we read it, thinking that it works just like that, that out of the blue, he just runs into people, and he's like, follow me, and they're so awestruck by him, they they go. But as you examine the scriptures more carefully, you realize that that's not the case at all. There really seems to be three phases to their calling, and I want to show you each of them very, very briefly so you can understand it. But phase number one seems to be an initial introduction, and the best account of this is found in John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51, which I'll put here behind me. But this is the story of what happens right after Jesus is baptized. So he's baptized whatever day that happens. The next day, John tells us some events that occur. And we're going to pick up the story the day after that. Start listening here in verse 35. The next day again, two days after baptism, John was standing with two of his disciples, two of John's disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, very polite, very formal notice at this point, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So Andrew, obviously, in that night of conversation, is convinced almost instantly that this man, this Lamb of God that John pointed to, is in fact the Messiah. So he goes and gets his brother. We found the Messiah, which means Christ. 
And he brings Peter to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him. You are Simon, the son of John, or Simon Barjona would be the other way of saying that. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth, the skeptic at heart? Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. He says it like it is. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And, and, and the story goes on from there. All I'm pointing out to you is that this is at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, like two days after baptism. That's kind of when we generally start his three-year ministry, public ministry period. Two days after baptism, he's running into these guys and he's being introduced to them. But that's all. It's just an introduction at this point. And from everything we see in the Gospels, these men continue to stay at their own occupations because later he's going to come back to Peter and back to Andrew. And what are they doing? They're fishing. They're working at their nets. They haven't changed careers. They know Jesus now. They've been introduced to him. Andrew clearly believes he's the Messiah, but but nothing's really changed in their day-to-day life. So you move on to phase number two, which is the call to follow. And this is where they're actually going to be asked to join the band of disciples in general, the larger group, okay? And this is what we read back in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. We'll just read it again. That passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. That's what they do. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately then they leave their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending the nets and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and and followed him see now now he's calling them to follow him full time it's a change they knew him before but now he wants them to to be a part of the group to come along with him and so they do that's why it seems so abrupt they're they know this guy they're they're good with this now okay they know who he is thirdly then next phase is the call to apostleship and, and it's hard to peg this from a timeline perspective. I've been doing this a little bit on my own, just as a, my own kind of personal project. Um, did I tell them the name, Jordan? I call it My Harmony. It's MyHarmony.com. Um, the Harmony of the Gospels is where you take the four Gospels and you try to put them together. And so I, I kept working on this project for weeks now, and Jamie would come in the office like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm working on My Harmony. And she would look at me really funny, so I kept the name. I like that. Um, Try to piece that all the stories together to get everything in the right order. It can be difficult because the Gospels are not written chronologically. They're not biographies. They are Gospels. They are presentations of Jesus as Messiah. And so the authors would put stories in the orders they felt best in order to communicate those points. So sometimes Mark has something here and Matthew has it down here and Luke's got it over and you're like, ah, what do you, where, do, where does it fit? And you, it's... It's been very challenging, but very rewarding as well. But by best estimates, if you line everything up, by best estimates, Jesus doesn't call the 12 apostles until about 18 months into his public ministry. The first year and a half, these guys are nothing. It's part of the group, or not even part of the group, still at home fishing. 
It's only that last 18 months of his life, from about a year and a half before death until, until he actually dies, that he's going to take these 12 men and he's going to begin to pour himself into them. And you're going to see a huge shift in the story from this point on. Well, not so much in Mark, because he didn't spend a lot of time in the forepart, but in the Gospels in general. Because once he calls the men as his apostles, instead of focusing on the crowds, instead of focusing on the multitudes, Jesus focuses on them more than anything else. They're being called to something much greater now than simply following him, which is great in and of itself, right? We're all called to follow. Now they're going to be his representatives on earth. And it's because of that that these men are worthy of our respect. See, just think of what we know about the privileges given to these men by means of their calling to be apostles. In in Luke chapter 22, I think it is, Jesus tells them, you're going to sit on thrones in my kingdom judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's that's amazing. In, In Revelation, we're told that their names are written on the gates of the new Jerusalem. Uh. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that they are the foundation of the church, Jesus himself being its cornerstone. The scriptures are going to come through their teaching. That's the New Testament. Either whether they directly wrote it or others wrote down the teaching the apostles gave, the New Testament is the record of the apostles' doctrine to us. And as it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, these men are going to be used by God to turn the world upside down the preaching of the gospel. And so they're not the three Stooges. They're not Laurel and Hardy. They're not the, the Keystone Cops. The stories we're going to read about them aren't there to make fun of them or to present them as buffoons, but they're just there to be an honest recounting of how Jesus took 12 normal, sinful men with all their failures, all their shortcomings, and used them to inaugurate his kingdom. And that should give us some hope. If he can take these 12 guys and use them in all of these ways, maybe he can do something with us too. I think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Whom does does Christ like to choose? The noble or the base? The, The wise or the foolish? The strong or the weak? He likes to take the bottom group here. He likes to take the the base the foolish, the weak, and make Christ everything to them so that he can then use them to put to shame the noble, to put to shame the wise, to put to shame the strong, so that he alone gets glory. This is what you see with these 12 guys. He takes 12 uneducated, weak, sinful, foolish men, and he turns the world upside down them. And now that's our job too. As disciples, as followers of Jesus, to go and be used by Jesus, to be used by Christ, to, to go and turn our world upside down as well. The praise doesn't go to us for that, right? God has to humble himself to use man. Do you realize that? He humbles himself to use us. And so we pray that, like he did with these 12 men, God will use us, just just ordinary people, in ways that far exceed our abilities or expectations to turn Hampton Roads upside down with the gospel. Can you bow your head? Jesus, we, we 
have come this morning to this listing of the apostles with the simple goal of getting a right foundation in which to understand them and to understand ultimately, Lord, what you are going to do with them. It's not about them. And so I pray, Lord, that this morning, if in any way my words have come across as bringing honor or or emphasis to these men, that you will strike that from every heart in this room. Because apart from you, their Savior and Lord, they are nothing. This is the gospel of Jesus, not the gospel of the apostles. It's the good news of what you have done. And so I pray, Lord, I pray that as we go out today, we will be in awe of you. And that we will be in prayer, seeking your face regularly, that you will take us, just ordinary people, and use us in extraordinary ways to build your kingdom. Clearly, that's your plan. You, you entrusted everything to, the, to these 12 men. You left them on earth with a mission to go, and they went, and they were faithful. And now we are here today as a result. We are preaching their doctrine, the doctrine you gave them. We are part of the church upon which they are, upon which they are the foundation, you being the cornerstone. And so everything we've seen today is directly tied to where we are now. And I pray, Lord, that as we grow, go out of here, we will remember that the emphasis is on you first and foremost. And so I thank you, Lord, for your word and what it teaches us. I pray that you will make us good students of your word, that you will change us more and more into your image, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.